a joy to be with you and to open up God's Word. Go ahead and open up with me to Genesis chapter 40. Genesis chapter 40, we're continuing our study through the life of Joseph. And as we get to chapter 40, the title of our message today is Training Camp, Preparation in the Pit. Training Camp, Preparation in the Pit. And if you're here for Gary's message last week, yes, I did borrow slightly from one of his points. He said training ground, I'm calling it training camp. Uh, So anyway, the first Monday in August is both daunting and exciting if you are a high schooler, especially a high school football player. The reason for that is it's exciting because it's the start of a new high school football season. Uh, Aspirations are high, dreams are alive, hopes are new as perhaps kids think this is our year. We're going to make it to states. But it's also daunting because the first Monday in August ushers in what is called summer training camp, or better known as fall two-a-days, where you have two practices a day in 100-plus degree heat, also not to mention the artificial turf that many of the teams practice on when you can have heat indexes of well over 115, 120 degrees. You have agonizing sprints and conditioning. You have weightlifting. You have, simply put, a challenging time for these teams. Yet it's here during these weeks that championship teams are made in the crucible of training camp. You see, no team will rise up, no team will raise the victor's trophy who has, first, who has not first been tested, prepared, and proven in August. You see, this idea of preparation and training camp, it's, it's not exclusive to the gridiron, right? I mean, you look throughout our society, you look at companies, businesses, Um, You look at employers, what do they do? They train their employees, they train their men, they train their women before they send them out on the job. Musicians, artists, doctors, lawyers, we could go on and on down the list. First prepare and first train and equip before they go out and do the work. As we look at scriptures, we think about ministry same is true. God prepares his servants. God prepares his people before he sends them out to the field. Moses was a man prepared for 40 years in the courts of Pharaoh. He was prepared another 40 years as he shepherded uh, the sheep in the wilderness. Joshua was equipped under the leadership of Moses. Samuel under Eli. David was trained by God as he kept sheep out in the field. Solomon was Uh, Brought up by his father David, Elisha was equipped and trained and prepared under Elijah's ministry. The disciples for three years got the best training from the best master in the world before our Lord Jesus sent them out. Uh, We have Paul who was first prepared by Gamaliel and then in Arabia by God himself. Titus and Timothy were prepared by Paul, the elders of the New Testament church were trained by Paul and Peter and Titus and John, and we could go on and on. And we see even today, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, as elders are 
and pastors are training up faithful men in the church to lead in the church, who will then, as we read this morning, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 12, train us, train the people to do the work of the ministry. Ministry involves preparation. It involves training God's people to do the work. God cares about training his people for ministry. That's really the message of Genesis chapter 39 and Genesis chapter 40. Go ahead real quick with me. I told you to turn to Genesis chapter 40, but uh, we're going to look at Psalm 105 just real quick. So keep your place there in Genesis chapter 40 and turn over to Psalm chapter 105 um, with me for a second. But just as I recount what we've been studying so far, Genesis chapter 37 introduced to us the favored son. There we saw Joseph in the line of Jacob. These are the descendants of. We see here a royal deliverer who seems to be Joseph. Joseph seems to be the royal heir, the one who would come in Abraham's stead to carry on the Abrahamic blessing. And that looks to be confirmed through his dreams as he has two dreams in which he seems to be lifted up and exalted. But we get a major plot twist in Genesis chapter 37. We saw that well, his brothers, they didn't like those dreams very much, and so what did they do? They exiled their favored, excuse me, the father's favored son into Egypt. And so in Genesis chapter 30, 37, we see the fall of the favored son. So if Joseph is, is supposed to be this heir that we're, maybe we've been looking for, the question is, is, is how will this be overcome? How will this exile into Egypt, this major plot twist, be overcome? And so then we go to Genesis chapter 38, which is the transformation of a fourth son, and then we get to Genesis chapter 39 through 41, which recounts how this plot twist, this exile, is overcome. That is, now we see the rise of the favored son. But before he can rise to his position of prominence, he must first be tested and prepared. Look at Psalm 105, verse 18. Again, we looked at this last time, but it's, I think it's good to be reminded of these verses because uh, in all accounts, they really give us the inspired author's explanation of what's going on in Genesis chapter 39 and chapter 40. It says this, verse 17, He sent a man before them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. They afflicted his feet with fetters. He himself was laid in irons until the time that his word came to pass. The word of the Lord tested him. So that's what we see going on in Genesis chapter 39 and Genesis chapter 40. Joseph's suffering was God's preparation. Joseph's trials, his affliction, was God's time to refine Joseph. That's what the word there for testing means, to refine. Just like gold is refined by fire to be pure, to remove the dross. Just as a blacksmith forges a sword, honing its edges, so too we see here that Joseph, through these dark years, is being tested, refined, and ultimately prepared by God until what? Well, the verse says, verse 19, until the time 
was to be. That what time was that? Well, the time that his word came to pass, the word that came to him in his dreams until the time in which he would be exalted. His suffering was a means of God preparing him to reign in Egypt. As R. Kent Hughes writes, quote, Joseph was being polished and stripped to be a fine sword, a fine redemptive edge, which would make him a mighty instrument in the hand of God. Or as I might say, a championship caliber leader ready to, make, uh, to lead his team to victory. So before Joseph could serve in this place of exaltation, he had to first be prepared by God in the training camp of suffering. You can go back in Genesis chapter 39. We see that training camp began in Potiphar's house. There Joseph was established as a conduit of national blessing. What was on a microcosm scale of uh, Potiphar's house, in which Joseph became a blessing to Potiphar and to those around him, was just preparation for a grander, a future ministry that he would have in blessing um, Pharaoh, Egypt, and the nations around them. And so we see that Joseph was established, and then we see that Joseph was tested. He was tested by uh, Potiphar's wife. Would Joseph stand firm? Would his character be uh, what it is necessary in order to be a man in such a role and a position? And what do we see? What do we find out? Joseph stands firm. He is a man of upright morality, a man of integrity, a man of character. I love what he says in verse 9. He says, uh, how can I do this thing? How could I do this great evil and sin against God? Joseph's character is being refined, tested, prepared. And then we see at the end of chapter 39, verses 19 through 24, he is proven then as he goes to jail, he continues to be a blessing to the Gentiles. Joseph, in every way, is proven to be God's future conduit of blessing, his role that he would partake in in Pharaoh's kingdom. As we get to chapter 40, his training isn't over. The time is not yet. Uh, his training be, uh, continues in the pit in chapter 40. So, if Genesis chapter 39 taught us that God providentially prepared Joseph to be the future conduit of national blessing, chapter 40 teaches us that God is providentially preparing Joseph to be God's prophetic mouthpiece in Egypt. What God is going to do here in this jail cell on this one morning is preparing Joseph for his future role on a bigger stage later on. And as we grasp that, as we try to wrap our minds around what this chapter can, uh, the, the timeless truth for us today, I would summarize the theme of our sermon as this. What's Genesis chapter 40 teaching us today? What's this? God providentially prepares his people for future ministry. God prepares you, believer, for the work. Right, God, if you stand here today in Christ, right, you have been saved by our Lord. You have understood the gospel, that there is only one God who has created the heavens and the earth, who has created you. 
and you have sinned and rebelled against that holy God, that God has made provision for your sin in the blood of his son that was spilled upon the cross, he rose again from the grave on the third day. You've repented from your sins. You have believed in him. You have been saved, but you've also been gifted. You've been gifted by the Holy Spirit with a spiritual gift to serve the Lord in his church. And now he is calling you to go out and to do the work. But as he calls you to go out, as he sends you to go out and do the work, he equips you. He equips you through his word, as we've already talked about this morning. But he also prepares you. He prepares you through his providence. I use the word providence, simply means this. Biblical doctrine writes, quote, His unceasing work to guide all things to their sovereignly appointed end. That's what God's providence is. What that simply means for us is this, is that God is using everything in your life to prepare you, to refine you, to train you, to strengthen you for ministry. And guess what? That includes your suffering. That includes the trials and the afflictions in your life, just as it included for Joseph. James 1, 2-4 says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Not just so you would be like Christ, yes, but so that also you would be prepared, equipped for the work of ministry. So God prepares us through suffering, and he prepares Joseph through his travails as well. The preparation of God's servant, Joseph, unfolds in three phases. For our time this morning, we're going to look at the first phase only today. And the first phase, phase one of this preparation is this. Joseph is established as God's prophetic mouthpiece. Joseph is established as God's prophetic mouthpiece. Go ahead and follow with me as I read our passage this morning. Genesis chapter 40. Then it came about after these things, the cupbearer and the baker for the king of Egypt offended their lord, the king of Egypt. Pharaoh was furious with his two officials, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. So he put them in confinement in the house of the captain of the bodyguard, in the jail, the same place where Joseph was imprisoned. The captain of the bodyguard put Joseph in charge of them, and he took care of them, and they were in confinement for some time. Then the cupbearer and the baker for the king of Egypt, who were confined in jail, both had a dream the same night, each man with his own dream and each dream with its own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning and observed them, behold, they were dejected. He asked Pharaoh's officials who were with him in confinement in his master's house, why are your faces so sad today? Then they said to him, we have had a dream and there's no one to interpret it. Then Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? Tell it to me, please. We see here that his establishment occurs through two acts of 
divine providence. The first act centers around a pair of treacherous offenders. A pair of treacherous offenders. Look at verse 1. It says, Then it came about after these things. Now, we don't know exactly within the timeline of when these uh, officials sinned and came into Joseph's life. We do know this, that Joseph was sold into slavery at the age of 17, as Genesis 37.2 teaches us, and that he rose to power when he was 30 years old and he interpreted Pharaoh's dream. So that's a span of 13 years from when he was sold to when he, was, uh, when he rose to power. We also know that Joseph was 28 when he interprets um, these dreams in the household, or excuse me, in the jail. So that means that it's somewhere around these 11 years that he is in Potiphar's house, he's in jail, that these guys come into his life. And so just think about that for a second, right? 11 years of mistreatment. 11 years of being beaten and thrown into a pit by his brothers, kidnapped and sold as a slave to a foreign land. 11 years of injustice in which he was maliciously accused and slandered by an immoral woman. 11 years of suffering in which he was kept in fetters and bonds in which Joseph says, it feels like I'm in another pit here. And yet, 11 years of God's sovereign protection and providential preparation. We saw in Genesis 39 that God was with Joseph, and he blessed him greatly. So yes, these are 11 years of hardship, but they are not 11 years of waste. Rather, 11 years of vital preparation in which every day, every week, every month, every year, God is refining his character and strengthening his faith. So it is that after these things that God providentially acts. And this first act begins with, his, with these high-ranking officials. Look at verse 1. It says, The cupbearer and the baker for the king of Egypt offended their lord, the king of Egypt. Now, obviously, a cupbearer was one who served wine to the king. And because of the threat at that time of poisoned drinks, these cupbearers had to be people of great trust. It was a position of high responsibility. He had one job and one job only. That was to guard the health and to guard the life of the king. And so because of their position and their trust and how they served, cupbearers became, uh, became confidants for the king. The king would entrust things to them. They became favorites in his eyes. They became officials who wielded significant political influence within the royal court. We can think of even Nehemiah in the position that he enjoyed as well. But we see here that he's not just a cupbearer, but rather he is the chief cupbearer, as verse 2 teaches us. So we then we would see that Pharaoh had several cupbearers in which this man was the leader. He was the chief over all of the other cupbearers. So he had a great weight of responsibility and authority, but yet with that comes great responsibility, or excuse me, uh, yeah, comes great responsibility for any mishap that would have come to the king. We also see the other high-ranking official here is the baker, the baker for the king of Egypt. Just like in our day today, bread is an important commodity for our daily diet. 
And so it was for the ancient Near East. It was an essential element of their uh, daily food and intake of their diet. And again, kings were constantly faced with the threat of assassination through poisoned food. And so the baker, just like the cupbearer, had to be one who was trustworthy. He had to be beyond the influence of the monarch's enemies. And so he had to stay watchful, uh, to stay diligent, both about the food that was going into the king's mouth and about who those servants were that were serving the king his food, lest his enemies sneak a assassin in there. Again, we see he's not just some sous chef. He's not just a waiter. He's the chief baker. He is the one over all of Pharaoh's kitchen. And so his privilege also brought great responsibility. So just thinking of these high-ranking officials here, just notice. Notice what God is doing in this, right? These are, we see here that Joseph is going to be introduced to two of the most important officials in Pharaoh's courts. Right? These are guys who, who didn't serve, Joseph, uh, serve Pharaoh at a distance, maybe like Potiphar, but these are guys who rubbed elbows with Pharaoh, men who conversed with Pharaoh on a pretty regular basis, who were trusted and who were influential men in the king's eyes. You know, if Joseph had any hopes of escaping his confinement, he needed men just like this. But Joseph was in confinement. He could not get men like this. But we have a God who sits on his throne who brings the exact men that Joseph needs into his life. And we see here that he brings them into the life, not really for the reason that we might expect, but we see their sinful offense. Right? Rather than coming as free officials, these guys come as criminal offenders. Which again reminds us of God's uncanny ability to use the least likely circumstances for the good of his people. Look at verse 1. It says, The cupbearer and the baker for the king of Egypt offended their lord, the king of Egypt. The word for offended just means, is the Hebrew word for sin. A word that we often hear for misses the mark. So we see that these guys had offended, but yet they had sinned against Pharaoh in some day, and somehow, some way, they had missed the mark of what their duties were. And so we see that they had brought great offense. And the irony here is in Genesis chapter 39, verse 9, Joseph says that he will not sin, he will not offend the Lord his God, and yet we see here comes two guys who had sinned and offended their Lord, the king. It's possible, commentators speculate here, so we can't put any weight upon this per se, but I think it's interesting to note that it could be that their offense was a possible uh, assassination, a mealtime assassination upon Pharaoh. That Pharaoh had gotten sick, and therefore these guys, because they were the chief, because they were the leaders, hey, these guys are the ones that are responsible. And so we don't know exactly what it was. It could be that, but whatever it was, because of their position of influence and uh, of authority, they were the ones that were responsible. So they're the ones that upon the hammer falls. And notice their punishment, their providential punishment in verses 2 through 3. Pharaoh was furious with his two officials. Whatever it was, was pretty bad. 
uh, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. So he put them in confinement in the house of the captain of the bodyguard in the jail, the same place where Joseph was imprisoned. Pharaoh lets his fury go. His anger implodes on these guys. He loses his temper and he absolutely unloads. And what's their punishment? Verse 3 says, so he put them in confinement. And notice what Pharaoh, uh, how Moses, how the author writes it here. He says, so he put them in confinement. Listen to this. In the house of the captain of the bodyguard. Okay, this is sounding very familiar here. We are hearing these echoes in Genesis chapter 39. He says, in the jail, again. And then he makes this point at the end, very emphatically, the same place where Joseph was imprisoned. You know, up to this point, we're like, why are these two guys an important part of the story? Why am I learning about what's going on in Pharaoh's court? That doesn't have to do anything with Joseph. Why do I have to know about a king who is furious and punishing officials? What's that have to do with this Joseph narrative? Well, here, Moses makes the point. It's God's providential act. He says, in the same place where Joseph was imprisoned. And we say, ah, now we got it. Now we understand why this is important. You see, the focus of this chapter is not on these criminals. It will not be on their dreams, but on God, who is behind the scenes working all these things out. We see that God divinely orchestrates a series of providential events to introduce Joseph to the very guys that he needs to help him escape his confinement. See, Moses is making a very important point here. That this is not just any cell. cell. This is not any prison. But this is the very place where Joseph is teaching us that Yahweh is on his throne. His sovereignty rules over all. And he is directing every detail in Joseph's life. And so it will be that through this event, far out of Joseph's reach, far out of Joseph's influence, far out of Joseph's control, that God will move and work for his glory and for Joseph's good. To use the sinful acts of two men, God will use this seemingly random accident to deliver Joseph. Right, this is God's sovereign providence. And it blows our mind. Now, I understand that for probably every one of us in here, it's not a truth that we don't know, but it's a truth we need to constantly be reminded of. A truth we need to constantly be encouraged by. That there's nothing, nothing that happens accidentally to you in your life. Right, I love this saying by R.C. Sproul. You, you might know it. It goes like this, quote, There is not a maverick molecule in all the universe. It's all under God's sovereign hand. Psalm 115, verse 3 says, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. He brings to pass his eternal will in your life exactly as he has decreed it. And so we're reminded here, 
throughout the Joseph narrative, throughout the story, through here in this chapter, in this specific event, that God is working everything out for his pre-appointed purpose. Those neighbors who just moved in across the street from you are there for a reason. Right? That new coworker, that new boss that God has placed into your life is there for a reason. And while we never we might never know what that purpose is until God brings it about, we are called to be faithful. To be faithful, to trust the Lord in his plan, to live out the gospel of Christ and strive to make Christ known to them in word and deed. And as we do, we step back and we watch as God's providential hand unfolds. So we see their providential punishment. That brings us then to their providential caretaker, who it is that will take care of them. And it's not just anyone, but it's Joseph. Verse 4, the captain of the bodyguard put Joseph in charge of them. And he took care of them, and they were in confinement for some time. So not only are they placed in the same jail where Joseph is, they're placed under Joseph's care. Joseph is assigned to be in charge of them. He's to be entrusted with their care while they're staying there, which of course is important because it's through this stewardship that God will then use them, use these men, that Joseph will be placed into a position to interpret their dreams. As Genesis chapter 39 teaches us, this reminds us that God is still with Joseph. He's still with them. Joseph's stewardship is a sign of God's kindness and God's steadfast love. And so we see here as Joseph is still in the midst of his suffering in prison, that God is still with him, and his hand of providence is still working in his life to bring this lowly, enslaved foreigner to be the one who would have the responsibility of interpreting the dreams of two of the most important figures in the kingdom. I mean, we just step back and we just say, Lord, you are God. You are great. We could probably go from table to table here, person by person, and you have stories just, well, maybe not just like this. This is a pretty crazy story, right? But stories of God's providence in which he has worked and shaped your life to bring you here where you're at today. Stories that reveal God's providential hand shaping your life and preparing you to be useful for ministry both today and tomorrow in his church. And we see verse 4 that Joseph took care of them, he ministered to them, he served them. And notice what it says at the end of the verse. I think this is fascinating. And they were in confinement. Notice he says, for some time. We don't know how long that was. For some time, could have been days, weeks, possibly years, we don't know, months. You know what, during that whole time, Joseph didn't know why those guys were there. Joseph had no idea what was about to happen. Joseph had no clue that God was bringing these men into his life, that God was literally shaping the world to bring these two men into his life for a specific purpose. He didn't understand exactly what was happening at that moment, but you know who did? God did. 
And the same is true for us today. I mean, we don't know why you just had the job layoff. We don't know why you had that recent health diagnosis. We don't know why God brought those people into your life. We don't know why you have that suffering, that trial, that affliction. We don't know why these things are going on in our life, but God does. God does, right? He is providentially orchestrating these details out in your life exactly as he has decreed them. Why? For your good and for his glory. All we are to do is trust the God who is on his throne, whose sovereignty is over all, and as time goes by, the truth will be made known. So far, we've seen through a pair of treacherous offenders that God has providentially set in set the pieces in motion so that Joseph might be established as God's mouthpiece over Egypt. But there's one more providential act that's going to occur in these first eight verses. We move on then to a pair of troublesome, uh, troublesome dreams. A pair of troublesome dreams. And this begins with a dreamy night. A dreamy night, verse 5. Then the cupbearer and the baker for the king of Egypt, who were confined in jail, both had a dream the same night, each man with his own dream and each dream with its own interpretation. So we see verse 5 says, Then, so it's been some time, we don't know how long, but then, now, now is the time for God to act. Now is the time that is ready for God to move the next chess piece. And it begins here with the cupbearer and the baker, the ones that God providentially bought, uh, brought into Joseph's life, whom he had no idea why, but here they are, the ones that God will use. And notice the language that he uses here. It's very specific. It's emphasizing for us a point. He says, both have a dream. Each man had a dream. Each man had a, and each dream had a different interpretation. And these dreams that each man had happened on the same night. This is not random. This is not an accident. It's not that these guys, you know, ate some bad food, and so they had some bad dreams that night, right? This is the providential hand of God at work. This is the point that Moses is trying to get us to understand here, that this is God choosing to work to reveal something, but on the other hand, there's another important part about that. It's significant that these are two dreams and not one dream. Earlier in the account, we saw that Joseph what, had also, what, two dreams. And so we see here, again, two dreams. Why? Because we are establishing Joseph's um, prophetic ability by the testimony of two witnesses. All right, if he got one dream right, oh, maybe he just... Maybe he just got lucky somehow. But two dreams, oh, there's no way. This guy truly is a prophet of God, one who has credibility as a dream interpreter. So we have this dreamy night that turns into a sorrowful morning. A sorrowful morning. Verse 6, when Joseph came to them in the morning and observed them, behold, they were dejected. He asked Pharaoh's of 
officials who were with him confined in his master's house, why are your faces so sad today? Then they said to him, we have had a dream and there is no one to interpret it. Now, how many of you have had a bad dream in which the next morning you've woken up and you've physically been jolted? Like, oh man, that was a terrible night's sleep. I had a terrible nightmare, right? All of us probably have had a dream like that. I had one not too long ago in which I was supposed to preach on a Sunday morning here at Countryside, and I did no preparation. I had no notes, and there was Pastor Tom in the front row staring at me. And I woke up the next day, and I was, I, was, I was shaking. My heart was pounding over that dream, right? So we've been there. We know many of you have had a similar experience of a bad dream night. Well, it's exactly what happens to these two, two royal officials behind bars in a little bit of a, a different way, though. Notice verse 6. He says, when Joseph came to them in the morning and observed them, he says, behold, they were dejected. Literally, their faces were physically afflicted. Their, their, their hearts were heavy. They looked gloomy and, and sullen. A picture of this can be painted in Daniel chapter 1, where the guard uh, who's over Daniel is concerned uh, that Daniel's face would have this same word, dejected, if Daniel did not eat the king's food, that Daniel's face would look sickly, it would look haggard, it would look malnourished. And so the, the picture we get here is these guys just with this grotesque, a portrait of gloom and despair. I mean, these guys are in jail, so they're probably sad, but there's something about these guys that make them look terribly sad in the eyes of Joseph. Why were they so down in the dumps? Well, verse 7 through 8 reveals it to us. Notice, it's not that they had dreams per se, nor is it that they had a bad dream per se, as we're going to read that later on. There's nothing necessarily in it that might be of a nightmare, of what we might call a, a nightmare, but rather... The point is in verse 8 that they didn't have a dream interpreter. They didn't have somebody to interpret to tell them what their dreams were about. You see, in ancient Egypt, the world of dreams held a special place in the mind of the people. They viewed dreams as a medium uh, in which uh, their gods would bring to them a message in which symbols and shapes foretold of prophetic events waiting to happen. And in ancient Egyptian thought, God revealed dreams, but God did not interpret dreams. And their idea, God, and their understanding, God did not tell them what their dreams meant. Humans told what their dreams meant. They needed human dream interpreters. And so we see that in Egyptian society, dream interpreters were highly esteemed. They were sought after by the people. Uh, historians tell, uh, tell us that Egyptians published books. Uh, they conducted research solely dedicated to the subject of dream interpretation. Uh, essentially, they had formulated a long scientific process in order to aid one in ascertaining the meaning of dreams. And so here are these two guys, high-ranking officials who are in jail. Their lives are in the balance. They don't know what's going to happen to them. So they're already in physical trauma here. And then all of a sudden, one night, they have a dream that absolutely shocks them to the core. One in which they believe there is this important message from one of their gods explaining to them of what's going to happen in the future. 
So you can imagine their anxiety as they pondered what was going on in these all-important dreams. And as they wake up, they find out nobody can interpret it for them. Nobody can tell them what's going on until what? Until Joseph shows up. And notice here in these verses what Joseph doesn't do here. Uh, As I was studying and meditating on these verses, I, I just found it to be so fascinating. Notice what Joseph doesn't do. In verse Six, we see that Joseph doesn't dismiss them. He, he doesn't come in and just say, oh, it's no big deal. Ah, oh, these guys, they're sad, they're down, they're in jail, they're criminals. I'm not going to worry about them. Here you go, continue on about my day. I'm not worried about helping or serving these guys. Notice also what Joseph doesn't do here. He doesn't miss out being so busy that he sees these guys in need. He's not saying, oh man, what do I got to do today? I got to get my task list done. I got to finish this and all the other assignments that I have to do as a steward of this jail. Oh, here you go, guys. Here's, here you go. Here's what you need. And off he goes. But notice what Joseph does here, right? God has divinely orchestrated a moment of, uh, of providential opportunity and Joseph takes advantage of it. Verse six, we see that Joseph keeps his eyes open. He keeps his eyes open and he sees the need. He comes in and he observes them. And behold, he sees that they were dejected. Verse 7, not only does he see them, but he doesn't shirk his responsibility. He doesn't dismiss their need. But instead, verse 7, he ministers to them by asking a simple question. By asking a simple, loving, caring, compassionate question. He says, Why are your faces so sad today? And what does that do? It opens the floodgates in which God's hand will now work and move in his life and in these guys' lives. I think that's so instructive for us. Right? We can do so much good for the glory of Christ and his gospel by just keeping our eyes open open day by day to those that God brings into our life moment by moment. Those that divinely orchestrated events that just seem as normal daily occurrences are God's means of providence to bring into your life so that you will then care and minister to others, to see their needs and take advantage of those opportunities. But let's be honest, right? I mean, how many times do we allow ourselves to get so busy that we're caught up in what we're trying to do that we miss out on those moments? We miss out on seeing that person in need here at church, and we don't go and seek them out and ask them a simple question. We miss the needs of the person in the grocery store that's checking us out, that we see them down in the dumps, and we're just, I, gotta, I just got to get my groceries. I got to keep going on the rest of my day, finish my errands. And we miss out opportunities to just ask them a simple question of love and care and kindness. And so on and so forth. Or sometimes, not only are we so busy that we don't take the time to notice around us, sometimes it's that we do see them, but we just don't take the opportunity. We pass on it. We say, ah, nah, nah, just, I'm not going to go there. By simply seeing the needs of these men and asking one simple question, God presents Joseph an opportunity to both testify to him as the only true God 
before these pagans, and at the same time to present Joseph the opportunity that will later be used for his deliverance. Right In this world in which our eyes are, are locked on our devices and our ears are stuffed with the latest earbuds, let's make time to keep our eyes up and to ask God to prepare us to love and serve whomever he might providentially bring in our path today. All right, who knows, it might lead to an opportunity for the gospel. Who knows, it might lead to another opportunity in another way. That brings us lastly to Joseph's response, a faithful response there we see in verse 8. Seeing this and hearing their reply, Joseph says in verse 8, Then Joseph said to them, Do not interpretations belong to God? Tell it to me, please. This is really the important verse that we've been working towards here in this first eight verses. In this response, Joseph reveals both his trust in the Lord and, importantly, establishes himself as the one who has ability to interpret dreams. Notice first his trust. His trust in God. He says in verse 8, Do not interpretations belong to God? As I said earlier, these Egyptians, they had, this was an unheard reality for them. They did not believe that God interpreted dreams. They depended on human specialists. They depended on scientific literature. They thought God did not speak. That sounds like another culture that we might know in our day today, exalting science, downplaying the role of God. But here is Joseph in his response back to him. Notice how he has asked a simple question. Now he has an opportunity to teach the truth. He says in verse 8, do not interpretations belong to God? In other, me- other words, he's rejecting. He's rejecting their faulty real, uh, worldview. He's rejecting their speculative science, their foolish man-made literature, and he forcibly proclaims that revelation and interpretation both belong to God alone. God is the one who not only speaks, but also enlightens his servants to understand. And so here's Joseph taking his stand, just like Daniel before the uh, pagan magistrates of Babylon. Joseph is pointing these pagan minds away from their faulty trust in human faculty and giving glory, giving glory to God alone. He is displaying his trust in the Lord. But he's also doing, secondly, establishing his ability to interpret dreams. He's establishing himself as a dream interpreter. Listen to what he says after saying that in verse 8. He says, tell it to me, please. So we get the connection that Joseph's making here. On the one hand, he's saying only God can interpret dreams. But on the other hand, he says, tell it to me and I will interpret your dream. So what's he doing here? He's acknowledging his role as one through whom God interprets divine revelation. He is acknowledging that he is establishing himself, excuse me, as God's divine messenger, that he is God's chosen mouthpiece. Tell me your dreams, and I will interpret. Tell me your dreams, and I will give you God's interpretation of it. And so Joseph is acknowledging here that God is still with him. Just as he was in Potiphar's house to be a conduit of future national blessing, God is with me. I am God's mouthpiece. I will speak to you for God. 
and do this, he is declaring his continued faith in God and the Lord's promises. Throughout all the ups and downs, Joseph is still holding on. Joseph is still clinging to the one who has promised to him years earlier to exalt him to a place of national prominence. And so we see that it is through the training camp that Joseph's faith is continuing to grow evermore. He is being divinely prepared not only to serve as a conduit of blessing to the nations, but also to serve as God's prophet, a man able to declare what God has revealed. And so the question is, as we finish, is, is this true? Is this true? Joseph has established himself, but is he correct? Can he really interpret dreams? And so as we get to the rest of the chapter next week, we will see that, yes, Joseph is God's mouthpiece. Just as no championship football team can lift the trophy unless they have successfully been prepared through the training camp that comes before, so too Joseph endured the training camp of the pit. Through two acts of divine providence, Joseph was being prepared for the work that God had in store for him ahead. The same is true for you today. God is preparing you for ministry by working through his ordinary day-to-day acts of providence. Your job is simple. Keep your eyes up, keep your ears open, and be ready to take advantage of those opportunities. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Christ. We thank you for the message of the gospel. As we've heard this morning, it is he who has shed his blood for us, who paid to purchase us to be his bride. Lord, we not only rejoice in our salvation, and we rejoice in your gifting and calling of us to ministry. Lord, may we look upon Joseph's life and learn and glean from his example how you prepared him through the providential acts that came into his life, through the suffering that he had to go through. You were shaping and sharpening him to be your faithful messenger. God, we pray that we also would see how you are shaping and sharpening us, that we would go out and be your faithful messengers. We love you, Lord. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.